This podcast was recorded on December 10th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and is subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. everybody welcome to the sherman show jeff sherman here with my co-host sam lau hey hey and those of you on the youtube channel see that we're live from the office we're here in downtown los angeles we're safer at home but very socially distanced uh today we bring you a very very special guest someone i've had the privilege of knowing for a few years or so and it's liz ann saunders she is a senior vice president and chief investment strategist at charles schwab and co welcome liz ann well thank you very much thanks for having me guys Absolutely. So it's great to see you socially distanced, truly physically distanced, of course, at this point. But, um, you know, you, you've been a strategist for a long time. You, you've re received numerous accolades. Uh, we don't have enough time to list them all out. Sam gave me a list of it. We were joking. Could we put it all on one page? But just to highlight it, I mean, you've been Smart Money's Power 30, uh, Best Strategy of the Year by Kiplinger's. I mean, you're someone that people follow. You have a great Twitter handle. You put out good data. So we're very privileged to have you today. So welcome Thank to the show. You. Thank yeah. you very much. Yep. So um, after I gave you all those accolades and platitudes, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you start? How'd you get in the business? Give us a little bit of background on your career path leading you to where you are today. Um, it made me not terribly inspiring. And and I wouldn't necessarily suggest this as a model for everybody. But when I was in undergrad, I had a double major in political science and economics, not because I had any idea whatsoever what I wanted to do. It just seemed a broad enough major to give me options once I graduated. And when I did, all I knew I wanted to do was live and work in New York City. And when I started to pound the pavement, I got connected with a headhunter that specialized in entry-level positions, I interviewed across the spectrum of industries, everything from sports marketing to ad agencies to Wall Street firms. And just something clicked with me when I interviewed at the company where I spent my first 13 years, Zweig Avatar. I'd done research on Marty Zweig, one of the, the founders who, as you may remember, was just an icon in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. And at the time, by the way, this was in 1986, when you did research on a firm with whom you were going to interview, that didn't involve going on Google. Uh, there was no such thing. So it was, I was in the library on microfiche, you know, scrolling through and reading the articles. I had also remembered him because there was my first econ course that I had to take in college required that we read the Wall Street Journal every day. And it was not every day as a teenager that I was terribly interested in that. And my dad actually gave me a little bit of a hint that at the end of the week on a Friday at 8.30, which inevitably was before we all went out in college, I could watch Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. And Marty was an original on that from 1971. Um, amazingly, I ended up joining that show in the late 90s and was on it until Lou passed away, but I, something just clicked when I interviewed with them. It was a small enough asset management firm. 
I started as a grunt, ended up becoming a senior portfolio manager. And I was, my role was, was a bottom-up stock picker. But because I learned the whole notion of top-down analysis, macro analysis, understanding monetary policy and how it impacted markets, I was much more fascinated by the top down than what I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So I went to grad school at night in the early part of my career there. They paid for it, which was great. Uh, I just walked to, uh, to class at the end of the day. And in 1999, for a variety of reasons, I uh, joined US Trust, uh, which 10 months later was acquired by Schwab. And it was then I was presented with the opportunity to take on this role that hadn't existed at Schwab in its history. So was able to shape the role. But it, the answer to that question, are you, is this something you might be interested in, was an immediate yes, because it gave me an opportunity to switch from the bottom up to the top down. And I think bottom up stock picking, that, that analysis, I think, has been beneficial to me. But I, I must say, I don't miss at all the stock picking part of what I used to do. <laughs> I, I really love the, the top down. And in particular, what I learned from Marty was understanding the power of sentiment and how big a driver that is. It's why one of my favorite lines of all time is the Sir John Templeton, bull markets are born on pessimism, they grow on skepticism, they mature on optimism, and they die on euphoria. And what I love about that statement is there are no fundamental terms in there. There's nothing about interest rates or valuation or earnings or GDP. It's all about emotion. And the reality is that's what drives market cycles. And, and being on the, it, you know, at the perch that I am now with, with now with the TD Ameritrade acquisition, about $6 trillion in client assets, almost all of which are individual investors, it, it, it's a real good sight line into the, the psychology part of the market, which I find more fascinating than just about anything else. So it's been 34 years and a, and a great ride and I'm thrilled to still be here. So thank you. You, uh, you, you. you hit on that, the euphoria idea and just sentiment. And it's one of the things I like to show kind of junior analysts when they come in and things and um, especially quants, right? Cause quants, you know, they've studied, they think you can model everything. I myself am a quant, I, I had that hubris as well. but. <laughs> The, the thing is, I like to show is go to, you know, uh, Ken French's website and pull down the factor returns, right? And so from a standpoint of there's the market effect, that's the beta, right? There's momentum, there's value, there's the size effect. And we can argue the merits of all of those and just have someone plot them and just, you know, give me the growth of a dollar that and look at these four lines. And what I, I, what I noticed with almost every single quant that comes in, because they've been indoctrinated the school of valuation and everything, if you show them what's the best performing line, almost every one of them will hands down say value, right? They've been taught value, 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 but it's momentum and momentum definitely outperforms along. It's more volatile, right. but I think that's amazing too that you talk about sentiment because here we are in 2020, right? And you said that your, your favorite quote doesn't have valuation in it. And here we are in a stock market that has a very high multiple, right? Um, every metric screams pretty expensive, but I don't hear anybody backing away from it. It's a sentiment trade right now. So how are you thinking about that? Are you still just, uh, where, where do you think in your Sir John Templeton quote, where do you think we are in that? Have we hit euphoria? What, where, what, how are you thinking about that? And how are you trying to gauge that for your clients today? So I think the shorter answer is yes, but 
we, we think about valuation and its myriad metrics, whether it's traditional PE ratios or equity risk premiums or price to book, price to sales, Tobin's Q, Fed model, rule of 20, Buffett model. I mean, the, the list is endless. We think of them as fundamental indicators because they have quantifiable components to it, but it's, it's sentiment. And it's not so much, valuation isn't so much a sentiment indicator as it is an indicator of sentiment. And so we disconnect the two oftentimes when we're analyzing them, but the reality is it's an indicator of sentiment. So we know there are times when you're in a momentum-driven market. And I like your comments about momentum. I think there's another force that we have to understand with regard to momentum. When, when the term momentum is used, and I find this all the time because I ask follow-up questions when I hear the term momentum, there, it, it's often tied to tech stocks, growth stocks, uh, more cyclically oriented stocks that have that that you know extra kind of edge. Momentum is wherever there is momentum. You can have momentum in tech stocks. You can have momentum in utility stocks. You can have momentum in growth stocks. Momentum in value stocks. It's just what has Absolutely. done well, what continues to do well. So, to and off, it, it's also like volatility. People will say there's so much volatility. They're often just generally talking about uncertainty, concerns out there, not necessarily what's actually happening in the market or as measured by things like the, the VIX. So there's these terms that are used that I think are used uh, maybe incorrectly or more broadly than they ought to be. But back to the, the gist of the question, I do think sentiment is incredibly stretched. And that really kicked into higher gear in early November, uh, I think quite directly tied to the, the Pfizer vaccine news and yep. the shift that we saw in market behavior. You could go back to late summer, that September 2nd initial launch to all-time highs for the S&P and the NASDAQ and point to really elevated levels of sentiment, but it was a bit more concentrated. It was, you were seeing it mostly in the cohort of the newly minted day traders, in the options market, uh, in the, the single stop call options, naked call buying. And I know I just mentioned options. Hopefully we're not gonna go on a tangent there because what I know about options could fit in a thimble with room left over. But <laughs> as a sentiment analyst, we, we I have to try to understand more than I normally would because that's where we were seeing a lot of that speculative fervor. Early November though, that, that stretch sentiment became pervasive across just about every behavioral measure of sentiment, but also the attitudinal measures of sentiment. So you saw it not just in the options market by those traders, you saw it in other behavioral measures, including the traditional fund flows. And then you started to see it across attitudinal measures like AAII. And absolutely, I think it's stretched. Now, whether it's so stretched that we're at a tipping point, who knows? Uh, it was, valuation was stretched for years in the late 1990s. So I do think it's sufficient enough that a negative catalyst could launch us into at least another June, September, or October, kind of mid to high single digit pullback with maybe a bit more pain in the leadership areas. Something more sinister than that probably requires maybe a, a more serious catalyst. And there's, there's, there's plenty of ammunition, of course, for those catalysts. Right. So um, I'll pick up on a few things you said there. First of all, I want to ask you about the 25 Delta risk reversal in the option market. So we'll, we'll keep your thimble really? knowledge out there. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm can, I, can I freeze and pretend like my uh, Wi-Fi just went down? <laughs> yeah, but we can hear you. So unfortunately, it didn't work too well. Whoops. Uh, but um, 
but you mentioned um, this kind of momentum and you're talking about, is it momentum in utilities? We saw that, you know, five or six years ago where people sure. were using utilities as an alternative to fixed income, right? right. Um, you know, there's been a big debate now because of this, you talked about the cyclical rotation too. Now, what we saw in November, you know, said on the back of the Pfizer announcement, was that you you start to see value stocks and those of you seeing i just broke my mic but i'm putting air quotes up on value i agree yeah i agree but the value now has momentum and so that begs the question what is it and you know i always say too we, we run some products and you know why can't growth be cheap why can't growth be the value right so i think it is a sentiment thing that drives value a lot of times in markets and then once you start to get momentum and value is it really value anymore is it momentum and so you, you have all these quants ripping their hair out and arguing with each other. But at the end of it, I think you nailed it right. It's how sentiment has changed. So as we sit here in you know the start of the second week of December, you know, you're talking about, okay, maybe there's a pullback or something because things got stretched. But are you seeing a rotation here? This is the big question people are talking about. Value investors in the traditional sense on all those uh, multitude of, of metrics you mentioned look stretched. But if you look at the, at, at the aggregate market level, and it's driven by five to 10 stocks, right? But if you look underneath the hood, what you've seen is this new kind of revival in these traditional areas. Do you think we're gonna see this kind of rotation? Are you cautious about it? How are you thinking about this kind of value rotation we see? It's like anything that's gotten beaten up this year rallied massively in November, right? So how are you thinking about that? How are you kind of advising clients to really think about that? Should they stick to their, stick to their traditional measures they're using or should they try to undergo this kind of rotation right now? So I, I want to I want to tackle several threads in terms of how I, I heard that and listened to what you said, because I think there's so many aspects of that that are really important. Um, I love the fact that you put quotes around value. Couldn't agree more. And, and I talk about this all the time. And at Schwab, we will make overweight, underweight recommendations on broad asset classes, even within asset classes. In fact, we... About six weeks ago, we took off a tactical view that we had had in place for three and a half years to overweight large cap, underweight small cap, and neutralize that. What we don't do is do the same overweight, underweight growth and value, because how, do, how are we defining growth and value, especially in this world of passive investing and index investing? What do you mean by growth and value? If it's pure index, even there, you have to understand what you're buying. So back to the point around value, if you just look at the three sort of most popular value indexes, either the S&P value index or the two Russell value indexes, Russell 1000 value, which is large cap value, Russell 2000 value. Just as a, for instance, on the Russell value indexes, the, the Russell 2000 value has 50% more financials and half as much in healthcare. So in a month like November, where you saw this massive sort of reversion trade into financials, into energy. Well, when you get a big financials move, it's going to be to a greater benefit of small cap value. Yet when you were seeing days like that, the narrative was more, this is a value trade, this is a small cap trade. Well, it was really a financials trade that accrued to the benefit of Russell 2000 value because 28% of that index are financials stocks. Um, another example I give on this whole esoteric growth versus value ties into something you said, Jeff, which is if you go back to October of 02, may seem like I'm going back a long time, but there's a point to this. That was the bottom in the tech bust. 
you had had the S&P and the NASDAQ down more than 55%. I think the NASDAQ 100 was down more than 80% from peak to trough. If you wanted to buy deep value then, you wanted to buy the tech stocks. You didn't want to buy the utility stocks. You wanted to buy the tech stocks. Russell hadn't moved them all from the growth index to the value index because they became cheap. They were still largely in the growth index, but that's where you found deep value. So especially in this world of passive investing, we have to take the blinders off. Because if you say, yes, I think the rotation continues toward value, that doesn't necessarily mean you just blindly buy the value indexes. I think we need to invest in the factor of value. And I, but I actually think what's going to work for investors is a bit of a hybrid. It's maybe too trite to say GARP, but I think that the bookends of you know, deep, deep value with really no fundamental benefit in terms of any possible growth characteristics or just ridiculously stretched valuation stocks where the growth doesn't actually justify that valuation, but actually that blend of reasonable growth prospects, if not really strong growth prospects, but I think you wanna have that filter, that valuation filter right now, and then also a quality filter. Now quality didn't help you much in November because the lower quality stocks, particularly with regard to balance sheet actually outperformed. I also think the rotation has had different flavors since early September. You on any given day or week, you could define it as growth to value or large to small or defensive to cyclicals or stay at home stocks to get out and about stocks to leaders to anything that had lagged. And I think November was mostly the latter. That's part of the reason why I think financials and energy did well. Traders, investors were saying, where can I go where there hasn't been that strong at performance. And those were the two sectors still down on a year-to-date basis. Everything else had sort of found some legs. So I think by rotation, I think it's gonna continue, but in fits and starts and maybe defined uh, in different ways, depending on what's actually happening within this broader rotation. But more broadly, I think for a persistent leadership shift to the, the areas that had not done well to areas that were really beleaguered by virtue of COVID, I think will rely on maybe not specifically a vaccine, but moving into a, a trajectory of growth that is a bit more sustainable than kind of the fits and starts that we've been dealing with now, largely because of the virus itself. Yeah, when you talk about fits and starts, here we are in California. We talk about fits and starts, right? Wow, I mean, yeah. we're, we've, we're, set, we're breaking records again in our cases, hospitalization and deaths. It's, it's very unfortunate. And you're largely in lockdown mode again, which certainly not right, which, the entire yeah, so country we have a little, Yeah, the, our anecdote is a little different perspective. Right. But coming back to what you said, too, you said that, you know, you have to think about things a little differently than these, some of these traditional measures, it's gross value, cyclicals, defensive, because of the passive investing. And I thought that was very interesting too, because we've seen you know people indexing, indexing is outperformed in the equity markets, a lot of active management, right? And so, you know, when you think about retail sentiment, and we've seen the number of accounts from your firm, you know, publishing, you can see in your earnings reports, and you, you see that the 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 proliferation of new accounts opened, um, options trading, things like that. How are you incorporating that into thinking about current market sentiment? Is this just something where we're back to the day traders of the 90s once again, that people are opening accounts, getting active in there. They've been successful because they bought things at, at de depressed levels. 
it gives this kind of overconfidence that, oh yeah, I can make 30, 40, 50, 80% in a year because, you know, this is easy, right? And so how are you trying to think about that? And, you know, retail always gets a bad rap in this business. And I like to, I like to joke and our institutional clients will hate me for this, but I'm like, there's no difference in retail institutional. It's still people, right? It's still right. people that have sentiment that are worried That's about right. things. And so how are you incorporating that into your mindset as we go into 2021? Will we get that kind of retail continued strength there? Is it something that's just everybody's active here? How are you trying to incorporate that analysis? I, that, that's that's a, a great point. Uh, and I, I use similar analogies all the time about retail versus institutional. You know, the institutions are run by individuals. So we're still talking about the same mix. And it's not purely the case that the retail investor is the dumb money or the contrarian indicator and that the institutions are the smart money and the non-contrarian indicator. I mean, there are behavioral sentiment measures that do attempt to track that sentiment trader has their smart money, dumb money confidence indexes, which are real money gauges of what the cohorts are doing. But even on that note, the so-called dumb money has been optimistically positioned all year or since March. and. Mm -hmm. For the most part, that's been right. So you can certainly go through extended periods where the retail investor, the individual investor, the so-called dumb money, however you categorize it, can be uh, right. I think there is is a cohort, and and we've uh, captured uh, a lot of that, much as every other brokerage firm out there and the the trading apps, and have seen a lot of the the new accounts that are opening or skewing younger. And I think there are potential pros and, and cons uh, to that. I think it's great that hopefully what we're seeing is further democratizing of investing, getting a younger cohort finally interested in investing again. There are hiccups along the way, particularly if unlike Schwab, I'm, I'm sort of plugging my own firm here, but I should, of course. I think the, the level of education uh, that we provide, particularly for new investors on our platform and especially anyone that wants to trade options and not just education, but a, a level of sophistication assets and experience that's required before they can start trading options on our platform. That's not necessarily what other folks do, but there, there is a cohort. Uh, you know, There's lots of nicknames for them, which I won't use, uh, that <laughs> do, and at least initially in the March timeframe, were younger traders that maybe didn't have access to the sports betting platforms. There's lots of, of data on this, both anecdotal and actual data. And they've gotten very aggressive in the options markets. And we've already heard some of the sad stories of the, the perils of that. So if we talk about that cohort, the answer to what that means from a sentiment perspective, the, the honest answer is, I don't know. Uh, what we've seen since we started the rebound in, in uh, late March, is that some of these more trying periods that haven't been dramatic, but again, the June, September, October pullbacks that were in the mid to high single digit percent range, more severe in places like the big five stocks in September and October, it actually beholdened those investors. They kind of pressed the bullish bets even more in the options market, in the single stocks. Um, I don't know what it might take in uh, correction terms to shift that tide. Or maybe if we go into a more sustained period on the downside, 
Do they shift their you know, naked call buying to naked put buying? We've already seen them shift in terms of just chasing wherever the momentum is to our point before. So there, there is a component of this retail cohort that is new, that we, we don't necessarily have comps to past periods. And much like the, the 1990s, it, it's an off-use example, but I think it's appropriate to cite the Alan Greenspan irrational exuberance comment, which came in 1996, and we still had many years ahead of us. So we could continue to look at an environment where the retail investor actually has been right, and they've almost taken on the role of the horse, putting the institutions to some degree in the cart, whether you're a market maker selling the call option that then has to purchase the underlying stock. If you're an institution that has S&P is a full or partial benchmark. You've got to be in the names that are driving the index. So it feeds on itself until when? I don't know. But yeah, I look at this stuff all the time because I think sentiment is so important. But there's, a, there's components of what's been going on recently that there really isn't a lot of precedent for. So we are, we are flying partially blind on the sentiment front because of this new cohort that has come in because of zero commissions and fractional shares. We at Schwab might have had something to do with the zero commissions part of that driver, but uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about um, sentiment. We talked about the, the role that retail investors play, and I kind of wanted to tie it all together and just think about how investors should be thinking about allocations in their portfolios as a whole. Um, you know, you can break it down from the traditional 60% equities, 40% bonds, um, although, you know, the death of the 60-40 portfolio has been talked about, you know, time and time again, but it seems like you're getting more questions, we're getting more questions about it now, especially as bond yields are so low, credit spreads are so tight, and people are thinking that perhaps an 80-20, 80 equity, 20 bonds, or even 100% equity is more the way to go, but for your average retail investor, how should they be thinking about those traditional asset classes? And given the shifts in sentiments that you're talking about, how often should they be reviewing their allocations? You know, with the work so from home I, environment. I love that question. Um, not because I'm going to give you an immediate numerical example. In fact, I actually often think in my own head, shame on anybody that does. Uh, so you talk about the average retail investor. What does that mean? So I could have I, I could have had somebody come from the future and tell me what, or give me a 99% probability that stocks are going to do X, bonds are going to do Y, maybe throw in some other asset classes, giving me a pretty high conviction of what markets are going to do. And I'm talking to two investors and the two investors are, investor A is not 22 years old. They just inherited $10 million, they're working they obviously don't need, say, their 401k money, their retirement money, the, the, their brokerage firm money. They're investing. They, they are highly risk tolerant. They go bungee jumping on the weekends. They're not going to open their portfolio every month and freak out at the first 10% drop. And investor B is 75 years old. They've built a nest egg. They need to live on the income of that nest egg, and they can't afford to lose any of it. What I would tell those two investors is entirely different, regardless of my high conviction view of what the equity market's going to do, what the bond market is going to do. So there should never be an answer to that question. 
because there are so many forces that, that are different for each individual. And then the whole risk tolerance thing too. There are, there's financial risk tolerance. We can put down on paper our need for income, all those things we already talked about, but also what's the emotional risk tolerance, which is really where the mistakes tend to, to come, not on the financial risk tolerance side, but on the emotional risk tolerance side. You also have a year like this year where, and let me go back pre-November. Pre-November, the total return on both 30-year treasuries and 10-year treasuries was higher than the total return on the S&P 500. I'm amazed at how many investors don't understand the total return aspect of bonds. They don't understand the yields go down, prices go up. Um, and then strategies that can be employed when you go into an environment where you're unlikely to get total return, you know, laddered strategies where it's almost like dollar cost averaging on the fixed income side. I've now said everything I know about uh, fixed income, but so that allocation decision is so specific to each individual investor. Now that said, some of the strategies we think maybe you want to apply uniquely in this environment is not just around diversification. I actually think diversification is going to be an easier sell than it has been in years past, where it was hard to sell the notion of diversification because on the surface, people would say, well, I'm getting nothing in yield and treasuries or other safe fixed income securities outside the US and the equity market hasn't done well. US equities only game in town. Don't talk to me about diversification. Already this year, we're seeing the benefits of diversification. And I think that that will expand even further, but also rebalancing. Um, so many investors, certainly on the institutional side, but even on the individual side, will, will do rebalancing based on the calendar. They might do it at year end, they might do it at quarter end. You know, Mutual funds do quarter end rebalancing, typically final uh, week of each quarter, which also helps to explain why the market bottomed on March 23rd. And we went into that week long rebalancing that kind of kicked the new bull market into gear. But we've been saying, maybe have your rebalancing be more portfolio driven or volatility driven or rotation driven, um, forcing us to do what we know we're supposed to, which is not so much buy low, sell high, that, that tends to infer all or nothing, get in, get out, but add low, trim high and stay in gear. Uh, because as, as many have said, including myself, uh, it's not successful investors didn't get there because of what they know about the future but how they behave based on what is happening in markets. And uh, I think that maybe more frequent or more portfolio driven rebalancing will help investors stay in gear. And that's regardless of whether you're on the more conservative end of the spectrum, which would mean you'd have safer investments, lower volatility investments, less in the higher risk areas and vice versa for the more risk tolerance investors. I know that was a long answer, but from, from our perspective, I think it's an important question and requires sort of a nuanced answer because there's too much of that cookie cutter. Yes, everyone should go from being 60, 40 to you know, 70, 30 or 80, 20. Depends on who right. the investor is. I'll summarize that in four words. Add low, trim high. Love it. Love it. Love I love it. that because I think that's, I mean, that's how we behave as investors ourselves for our clients. And so uh, let me ask you something that I, I've seen as being somewhat controversial over the years when it talks about risk tolerance. And you said there's financial tolerance, there's emotional tolerance, and there's the exogenous, right? You don't know when an event hits you personally, right? right. So we can talk exactly. about COVID, but you don't know when you lose your job or something right. like that. So there's the heuristic of like, 
okay, well, you should take 100 minus your age, that's your equity allocation. And I've heard this from a lot of people over the years. You're young, you should be 80% stocks or 90% stocks, but that throws out the idea of the risk tolerance and everything as well. Um, do, you, do you find that there's a risk tolerance shift as people just have different events in their life as well? Because these heuristics that you hear, like Sam used the 60-40, it doesn't apply to everybody. It's just right. like somebody, some academic one day wrote a piece, right? Look at how this does. It mutes volatility and all this great stuff. But it isn't perspective. It was always looking in the rearview mirror. Huh. So how do you think about that changing of risk aversion um, for people as they are investing? I, Jeff, I think that's a really great point because there are risk events that are that affect everybody, that affect markets like COVID, like 9-11, like the financial crisis. But then there are your personal risk events. And it it is things like losing a job, but it's also those risk events that affect everybody, the learnings of how did it affect me? What what did I do? Were there mistakes I made? Did I did I realize, boy, I can maintain my conviction of the benefits of investing long-term and using collapses like that to, to rebalance? Did I have the guts to be adding as things were moving down? Or did I, uh, you know, in, in March of 2009, did I finally say, I can't handle this anymore, I'm out. So I think in some cases, it's, it's how we as individuals, as investors, as traders, have reacted to both those external events and those internal events that dictates maybe where you sit on the risk spectrum. And too often age is directly tied to risk tolerance. And it can, it can move in the opposite direction. I remember going back to my Wall Street Week days, having the great honor and pleasure to have had Sir John Templeton as a guest. So there's what was always great about that show were the green room conversations uh, with the guest, with the other panelists, with Lou in advance of actually going on air. And we just got into a fascinating conversation about risk tolerance. And he was in his 90s at the time and just talked about a very high tolerance for risk, his, his embrace of equities, not because he had 40 years left to live, he understood the risk and was willing to take it. Now he's a billionaire too. So the, the net worth factor, how much money you're actually putting at risk, <laughs> arguably just can't come into the equation, which goes back to the you know, 75 year old who needs every dime of the nest egg that he has put together. So there's so many factors that go into it, but I, you make a great point. It, it, it's, it's both what has happened to you personally, what's happened to everybody uh, that matters, but also how the learnings of how you have reacted to that. And did you, did you actually maintain that discipline and do what ultimately served to be the right thing or was that to trigger for you to make that emotionally driven mistake that you look back on and say, I can't believe I gave up right at the low? Yeah, I, I love that you also point out that it's the green room conversation, because I always find that too, the, the banter we've had before the show today. And these say, those are things you really glean from everything. It's this event itself, but you get to you get to get in the inner working. So let, let me kind of finish on a note here. Um, you know, we, we've we talked a lot about, you know, defining events and you use financial crisis, you use 9-11. Um, I, I kind of equate COVID to 9-11. Something <laughs> changed in the world that day, right? Yep. Something changed in this COVID environment. And, you know, um, there's been a lot of revival of like uh, the Howe and Strauss fourth turning and things like that, that this is really a movement. So let's, let's kind of put on our forecasting hats and let's think about 
the next five to 10 years, which is extremely difficult. We all know that. And it's, we're going to have low success of getting it right. What do you think is one of the biggest shifts that's changed here? What do you think has changed societally, um, whether it's markets? What do you think is the big change here is as, as people are thinking forward over the next few years? Uh, is it, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn, they say, right? So we've had this big crisis. We've seen people congeal come together. We've seen divisiveness. What do you think about the next few years and what's going to change off of this kind of COVID experience? So let's call it the 2020 experience. I love this question. I think about this all the time. What are some of the secular changes that come out of this? And I, it, there's, there's not just one broad one. I think there are several of them. And some of these, I think, were shifts that were already underway, but got but sped up or exacerbated by virtue of the, the crisis. Um, one of them is somewhat obvious, although you guys are in the office uh, today. I'm in my home office. I think the, the, the remote working, not just work from home, but the ability to conduct business wherever one is and a, and a rethinking of how we work, when we work, um, the integration of every aspect of our lives. I think that genie is out of the bottle and I think there's going to be much more flexible thinking, creative thinking about what working means, how it's done, how every individual is different. Some are morning people, some are late afternoon people. And I've always lived my life to some degree that way. Pre-COVID, I was on the road every week and I have largely worked remotely um, at my leisure, so to speak, for, for a couple of decades uh, because I don't manage a lot of people. I don't manage a PNL. Schwab is all over the country. No one has said to me, you, when I was living in Connecticut, now I'm based in Florida, you better get on Metro North every single day and spend round trip three hours commuting because you're only going to be productive if you're physically in the office. That is complete hogwash. Um, you're either a productive person or you're not. And I think many people are proving that, wait, I just eliminated three hours of commuting. We're working longer, we're working harder, but we're happier. And I used to get asked all the time, especially when my children were younger, you know, how do you balance it? And shame on people who only ask women that and not men, but that's, that's a whole nother tangent. And I always said, well, maybe it's just the semantics of the word, but I never think of it as a balance. I think of it as an integration because balance means you're giving one, you know, you're all to one at the expense of the other and integration is just wrapped in. So I think a more creative thinking around how, where we work, when we work, that genie is out of the bottle. The ability to conduct business in a remote setting, the, the almost the forcing and I don't want to say just up the age spectrum, but out the spectrum of people who weren't comfortable with this kind of technology saying, boy, this makes sense. So the adoption of digital across every industry. I also think another shift, and we arguably started to see this coming out of the financial crisis, is that consumption off the back of debt, at least by households, has coming down. That, that, that need and understanding to have that safety net, that cash cushion, I also think we'll bring about an economy that is not as dominantly driven, meaning almost 70% by consumer spending. And what I hope to see is more an investment driven economy, investments in healthcare and education and infrastructure. And this is not just on the policy side. Things like infrastructure get talked about as an area of bipartisan support, but I'm just talking about also private sector 
investments um, and just human ingenuity. We, we are seeing that, and that's the most optimistic take from this. We're reinforcing that we are, we are brilliant and are creative and can solve problems at, at a pace that is beyond anything we could have imagined. Less than a year to come up with a vaccine when the fastest we've ever done that in the past is four years. And that is my, that sort of cements my confidence in the ingenuity of, of us as individuals and our economy to solve some of the greatest problems. And we're living that right now. So I actually have a very optimistic view coming out of this. Now we're in the midst of all of this creative destruction to go back to Schumpeter, but, um, and, and we're, we're dealing with the destruction part of it right now, but we're also seeing the creativity. And I think the future of our economy and thinking about the drivers of our economy, I think eventually they'll be able to absorb a lot of the displaced workforce that has come out of this COVID environment. There's, there's process along the way of retraining um, uh, the skills gap, but um, I'm really optimistic coming out of this about our economy, its resilience. And, and I think it's interesting to think about some of the shifts that may be underway. Yeah, no, I, I, I love the comment too. I love the integration versus balance. That's how we think about risk as well. It's not like you're trying to offset, but you, how things work together. Right, exactly. But then also it's a, it's a quote I've used many times, something I've said, it's not a quote because it's my own self. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that you never want to short human ingenuity. And you, you just, you were on that. Is that that's why America is such a great place too, that even when we get mired down, there's too many Malthusian people that are draconian scenarios. Everybody's so dire, but that human ingenuity, that innovation, and we, we provide a platform to foster that. And so I hope we get back to that. I hope we continue that. And um, that's, that's the beautiful thing about our country and education. You know, th these are the things that we really need to focus on retooling, getting the labor market improved, new jobs, new areas. And so I want to end on that high note. But before right. I leave you, before I let you leave though, Liz Ann, I know you got other things to do. Sam has to introduce you to his favorite part of the show. So Sam. All right. And my favorite part of the show, Lizanne, is called Sherman Says. All right. What I'll do is I'll offer a series of alternating prompts, beginning with Mr. Sherman and then going to you, uh, to which you'll offer a top of mind response. So okay. kick it off here with Sherman on debt spiral. After I said all that thing about human ingenuity, yeah, I got to bring it back that, down. I got to bring it back spiral. down. Um, <laughs> dangerous. Uh, Lizanne, student loan debt. Um, will be partially forgiven. Small business closures. I got. I got to get some uplifting stuff in yeah, here. Yeah, really. <laughs> Small business closures. Unfortunate. Roaring 20s? Uh, won't be the same as these 20s. Temporary job losses. Replaced by new jobs. Yeah, I'm reading my list here. This is horrible. Um, <laughs> I think Sam was in a dark place when he created these. Wow. <laughs> With the help of Mr. Kimbrough too, or so as well. So um, back to you, Lizanne, with debt forgiveness. 
probably not the end game. Congressional gridlock. <laughs> Reality. Negative rates. Here in real terms, but not in nominal terms. All right, let's uh, let's let's amp this up a little bit. We're gonna end it on a good note. Favorite holiday song. <laughs> Which holiday? This holiday. You pick <laughs> it. Oh, okay. You pick it. Hallmark holiday. <laughs> um, Mamacita. <sighs> nice. The the full name though is. Uh, Donde esta Santos Claus by Augie Reels. It's one of my yeah. favorites as well. Wow. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've learned that one from Sam. So there's a reason that we bantered on that one. <laughs> all right. It's so a classic. Go out there, Google it. You may, yeah, I think you may have a new holiday song. So check right. it out. And then the last one is for you, Lizanne, with favorite music genre and alongside that, the artist within there. Classic rock. And I have a three way tie. That's okay. All right. Course. Led Zeppelin, U2, and Rolling Stones. Oh, that's a good I see trio. one of those books in your background at least. So yeah. yeah, and I have a fabulous picture that I love with Bono, um, but I was told yesterday by Schwab I, I couldn't have it on my shelf, so it had to come oh. down. But uh, all yeah. right, well, um, that's the world of compliance. My CCO <laughs> sitting here looking at me, so and so uh, I understand that world. So Lizanne, it was awesome to have you. It's great. Thank you. Love the insights. Love the way you think. Uh, where can our listeners and viewers uh, learn more about what you do at Schwab and get access oh. to your materials? Well, thank you for that question. So what a lot of people don't realize is my research, as well as my fellow subject matter experts, all of our information is on schwab.com, the public site. You don't have to be a client. You don't have to have a login. You just go on schwab.com. There's a section called insights. Everything is there. But probably the most effective way to not just get everything I write, videos that I might do, but stream of consciousness, lots of data, charts, reactions to economic commentary would be on Twitter. Now, I've had a rash of imposters recently on Twitter. So my handle is at L-I-Z-A-N-N-S-O-N-D-E-R-S, at Lizanne Saunders. No two Ns, no two Zs, no exclamation point at the end, no underscores. So at Lizanne Saunders. Look for the blue check mark, right? That's right. And the blue That's check right. mark. Right. Okay. Well, Lizanne, we appreciate the time you spent with us today. Um, same thing. We appreciate the democratization of what you're doing. It's free out there. We love to do that here at Double Line. Same thing for our investors out there. You're looking for latest thoughts as we wrap up the year. Doubleline.com so we can catch some of that. You can follow us on the Twitter as well at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, luckily, we're not very popular, so there's no imposters that we know of yet. Um, so uh, you can follow us there. You can catch us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, iTunes, wherever um, good podcasts and, and marginal ones like ours are being, being <laughs> broadcast. And further to that, uh, obviously, this is on the YouTube channel today. So youtube.com backslash double line capital. That's capital C-A-P-I-T-A-L. We are not the capital of double line. It's actually for money. So anyway, thanks again, everyone, for tuning in, Liz Ann always a pleasure look forward thank to having you, you back someday in the future too and uh, best of luck as we go on this holiday season take care thank you i had a blast thanks so much okay. thank you bye-bye bye
The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital